So I bring greetings from way off in the land of Jamaica Plain here to Brookline. Uh, thank you so much for having me this morning. Glad to step in for Pastor Bland, who's with his mom, uh, who broke her hip. Bland's had a tough, tough week. Dog passed away. It's been a tough one. And so I'm, I'm glad to step in this morning. We just bring greetings as well. And uh, so a little bit about me. Uh, so my family and I, we actually were here. Uh, one of those churches that, Bland, uh, that uh, Mike was talking about was planted out of this church in 2020. And so our family moved here in 2018. I was actually just looking at some pictures of my kids from that time, and they were tiny, and now they're huge. We have three teenagers one is acts like a teenager, so pray for us. Um, and uh, and so and God is just is blessing our family, blessing our church. We had a huge holiday service last night that we do every year. Had lots of unbelieving friends and neighbors come to that. Um, the Lord is just doing some incredible things. And so thank you for your support, for sending us, for continuing to support what God is doing around the city of Boston. Uh, and I do love this time of year. I love the holidays. I love. Everything about the holidays. I love Christmas movies, and the older that I get, the more nostalgic I become. I'm becoming Clark Griswold from Christmas Vacation. I want the giant display, and that's a fight with me and my wife because she's a minimalist to the core. I want colored lights. She wants white lights. It's, it's a struggle. Um, I love Christmas movies. I love everything about Christmas. I love the joy that comes with Christmas time. But Christmas isn't always the most joyful thing for all of us. For some of us, Christmas is hard. The holidays are a difficult season, particularly if you've lost a loved one. If this is the first year that you're going through the holidays after losing a loved one, there's this sense of longing and, and struggle that the holidays aren't always as easy as they have been in the past. But also, when it comes to our relationships, even those with our living uh, relatives, if those relationships are strained or estranged, it can make the holidays very difficult. It can make that very hopeless. It can make us long for repair for relationships that we don't even know if they're going to be repaired or not. And one of those relationships that many of us struggle with is the relationship with our fathers. For many of us, the holidays highlight that there's just something not right with our earthly fathers. For many of us, we experience what's been described as a father wound. Uh, British psychologist Dr. Mary Covenon specializes in attachment theory and she talks about how our emotional and physical needs are met through our families and then shape every relationship for the rest of our lives. So the way that you engage with yourself, the way you engage with others, your coworkers, your hobbies, your self-esteem is all tied up in your family of origin. And she says that our relationship with the father affects our ability to attach more than any other relationship. And this is called a wound because it feels like this wound that's just, it's deep. It's something that we can't even heal. I, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. I love this time of year because I, I make my wife watch Lord of the Rings with me. And we have a deal. I'll wrap presents as long as she'll watch the extended versions, right? And there's, there's that scene where uh, the, 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 the witch king stabs Frodo in the chest with, with a blade and it's a wound that never heals. In the same way, a father wound is often like that wound we feel is never going to heal. And for some, that is the wound of abuse. Some, it has been physical abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse. And, and, and in the room this size, there are some who have likely experienced that at the hands of a father. And that's a deep wound. But it doesn't have to be abuse for it to be a wound. It can be the wound of neglect. You had a father who just never paid any attention to you. It could be the wound of absence, that your dad was never around, or your dad left, or you're just, you never knew your father at all. 
It could be the wound of a, of a controlling father who was never very loving but always wanted to tell you what to do, or the wound of a father who withheld his love from you and only gave it to you when he wanted something from you. And this really gets at something, this woundedness that many of us, and I think our generation more than any other, experiences, or at least voices. And another psychologist, Jim Katsuda, says about the father wound, he said it's best described as a longing within the human heart that every person longs to know that they were wanted and cared for by their biological fathers, and yes, sometimes others as well. It is a desire in the heart to know that our existence matters to our Father, and He is pleased that we belong to Him. Each of us want to know that someone is pleased that we belong to them. Each of us want to know that we're important and that we matter and that we're valued and that someone in our, our father, our earthly father, loves us at this level. And even if you had the best father imaginable, you still long for an even deeper love from your father. So whether you had the, the best father in the world or the worst father in the world, we're still meant to see how the love of a father points us to a greater love that each of us were meant for. And I think this is why it's incredible that the wording, the phrase, the name that's given to describe Jesus' love for us at Christmas time is everlasting Father. I'm going to read just one verse this morning. It's been the framework for all of Advent, for all of our congregations. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The love of Christ is described to us as an everlasting Father. He's everlasting, not just in the sense that he's eternal in his being as God the Son, but the love he has for us is an eternal, everlasting love. And it's what Alistair Begg describes as being a forever father. He says, the human heart longs for an endless love, and sin breaks love relationships, and death changes them irrevocably in every instance save one, and that is the endless love of a forever father. On the third Sunday of Advent, as we explore the love of God, maybe you've had a father who was distant or absent, but I want you to know that Jesus came to love you with the love of a forever father. So how does Jesus, being the eternal Father, the everlasting Father, show you God's love? Now, first I want to make a little clarification. Some of you who have been Christians for a while, you've read your Bible, um, you're, you've read some theology, you're like, wait a minute, I know that Jesus is not the Father. That's heresy, right? We don't, we don't go down that road. Jesus is the Son. He's God the Son. So how can Jesus be described as an everlasting Father? Now, Isaiah is not denying the Trinity. Isaiah is not a heretic. Isaiah is trying to show us something about God. He's not denying God. I mean, we, we believe in one God in three persons. We believe that there's one God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but is, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who co-equally exist as God, the three in one. Uh, and, and I really can't give you a great example of this because every example of the Trinity is just an example of a heresy about the Trinity. So I'm going to try my best to just explain that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each God. But the Father's not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father, and the Son's not the Spirit. They're, they're, they're not all the same, but they're three in one. They're in relationship with each other. But there's actually a, a Near Eastern custom that can help us understand a bit of what Isaiah's trying to get at. In, in the Near East, the oldest brother would stand in for the father when the father was not there. So if the father was, was traveling or the father had passed away, in title, the son was now the father. 
The son was the father, and he took, the oldest son took precedence over all, and he took up the position of the father, and he was the one that held all the promises of the father in his hand. So Jesus, the firstborn, shows us the father, and he shows us what the father is like. Jesus, while on earth, joyfully submitted to the will of the father so that you and I would know what he's like. And so firstly, our first point is that Jesus' everlasting father reflects what God is like. He shows us the type of love that we receive in a forever father. And this is why John 14, 9 says that whoever has seen me, Jesus, has seen the father. So what are some ways that, that Jesus images the father? Well, he images the everlasting father as creator and sustainer of all things. In one sense, Jesus is a father because he's the father of creation. John chapter 1, which we covered a couple of months ago as congregations, described that Jesus was God and he was with God. We see the Trinity again, but also that there was nothing that was created that he didn't create, that everything was created through him as the source or the father of creation. That the uncreated one, God from all eternity, is the creator and sustainer or the everlasting father of creation. Now, this whole thing with the Trinity, if you're as confused, everybody's been confused about this for the ex whole existence of the church. At the very beginning of the church, there were a group of false teachers that cropped up and wanted to say all sorts of things about Jesus. That some would say he wasn't human. Some would say he wasn't God. We believe he's both fully God and fully human. And there was this one teacher named Arius who came up, and he had this famous quote about Jesus. He said, there was a time when he was not. There was a time he was born. There was a time he was begotten. And he began to spread this heresy throughout the church. And by the way, the way he spread this heresy was through music. So be careful the worship music you listen to. It might be catchy, but it might be bad theology. That's another sermon for another day. But the way that, the way that we make decisions as churches when we have a conflict is we get a committee together. We get a council together, and we got to make a decision. So they get this council called the Council of Nicaea together from churches all around the known world in 325 A.D., they come together, Arius gets up on stage, and he starts, I think, I imagine like a battle rap is what I'm imagining in this moment. He gets up on the stage, and he begins to share his, his heresies about Jesus. All of a sudden, St. Nicholas, yes, that St. Nicholas, the one that we pattern Santa Claus after, goes across and knocks Arius' lights out in the mid-speech. So tell that story to your kids this Christmas, okay? Jesus is bringing haymakers and presents, or Santa Claus is. Jesus might too, I don't know, Santa does. And so it's important, and what, what, what St. Nicholas was getting at is that the eternality of Jesus as the father of all creation is vital. It's vital to our understanding of the love of God because we need to see that Jesus is not a sub-God. He's, he's not a second-rate God. He's not a, a God below God the Father, but as one equal with the Father and equal with the Spirit, he takes all the promises of God the Father in perfect agreement with the Father and the Spirit, and makes them actually yours. He brings them to you and demonstrates all the blessings of creation to you as a forever Father, and this says something about his loving purpose. Jesus didn't start loving you when he was born into the world. That God has loved you from eternity past, and he's gonna love you into eternity future. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus who is forever, the one who created all things, cares for you and loves you eternally. And this is why Francis de Sales says that the same everlasting Father who cares for you today will care for you tomorrow and every day. Be at peace then and put aside all anxious thoughts and imaginings. 
What this means is that if God created all things, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things, this is his world. And this means that your life is his life. He's the one who created it and sustained it. So why do you and I get anxious about the little stuff? Why do we struggle with the things that seem bigger than ourselves? We have a loving creator who sustains all things. Secondly, he images a caring and compassionate father forever. The, the tone and the nature of God's love to us is a tone of tenderness and care and compassion. It's gentle and lowly. Many of you have read Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, and if you've not read it, I highly suggest it. It's an entire book talking about the tenderness of Jesus, the, the lowliness of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, almost like an earthly father getting down on one knee before his daughter and just simply speaking words of kindness to her, words of care, words of, of tenderness, making her feel safe. And we see that the tender, gentle care and compassion of Jesus is never ending. And we see that in Luke chapter 12, we see a bit of this love. We see a bit of this compassion as Jesus tells his disciples, do not be anxious. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. That's a command. Don't be anxious. Now, why is Jesus giving us this command? He's not giving us this command because he's condemning us for being anxious. He's not treating us like ungrateful children and saying, how dare you? Don't you know I'm the sustainer and the creator of all things? How dare you be anxious? No, he says this with tenderness and love and care. Child, you don't have to be anxious. You don't need to be anxious. You and I get so worried. And Jesus lists out the things that we get worried about. We get anxious about our lives. Right now, you probably have a laundry list of things in your life that you're worrying about, that you're running through your head. Like, what am I doing here? Am I going to make it through this semester? Am I going to get this job or get into this program? Am, am I going to meet someone here that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with? We, we, we think of all these life problems that we get anxious about. For some of us, food and provision is a very real question. Am I going to make enough to make rent this month? Clothing, am I going to be covered? And a statement like, don't be anxious, is a little bit like when you're in an argument with someone and they say, you need to calm down. Right? You ever, anybody ever, I, I don't want to calm down. I want to punch you. If, if someone says, don't be anxious, the first thing I want to do is be anxious. Unless the person telling me that has the power to take away my anxiousness. And that's why in verse 23, Jesus says, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Almost like these things that seem big to you are small to me. I've got them. And he points our attention to verse 24 to the ravens. He says, consider the ravens that neither sow nor reap and they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Have you ever seen an anxious bird? They're just happy. They're flying around the air. They're, they're singing in the morning, sometimes too early in the morning, right outside my window. But they're not anxious. He continues this down in, in verse 27, where he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. Have you ever seen a lily or a flower straining toward the skies if God was not going to provide enough sunlight and nourishment for them? And yet we see he values us even more. Verse 28, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? He values you and he loves you and his care for you is attentive. 
And he doesn't just love you and he doesn't just value you. He knows you. He knows what you need. Verse 29, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world. Seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. The Lord knows that you need them. He knows the things you long for. He knows the things that you desire. And he's leaning in with interest. If you can imagine the posture of God towards you with his care and compassion, it's not indifference. It's not him leaning back in a chair with his arms crossed. It's him leaning forward and it's him coming into our world taking on flesh. That's the posture of God's compassion and care for you. John Piper says that if we're children of God, our souls need not ever be troubled alone or in silence. We have a father who cares for you and he knows you and he knows everything and he knows the needs of your daily life, but he also knows the deepest need of your heart. He knows that our deepest need is not just physical, but our deep need is spiritual. And this is why in Matthew chapter nine, Jesus sees the crowds and he has compassion. It says that he went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looks at us and he sees our spiritual condition, he sees our helplessness. He sees how we're harassed. He sees how we get into problems of our own making. There was a video rolling around on social media a few years ago of the sheep stuck in a hole. And the shepherd comes up and grabs the sheep by the back legs and yanks it out. And the sheep immediately runs four feet and jumps right back in the hole. That's us, okay? (laughs) That's the image of us being sheep. But the image of the shepherd was him walking over and gently pulling that sheep out again and again. In the same way, Jesus knows us and brings us to himself. He sees your attempts to find value. He sees your longing to be loved, and he's moved with compassion of a forever father towards you. He also images the father as a provider and a protector, a provider and a protector forever. When when a father provides, this imagery of a father providing, we imagine the source of everything that we would need. And so your parents, mom and dad, when they're working, they're, they're working in order to buy food and put it on the table. They're trying to put a roof over your head. They're, they're clothing you. They're providing all you need. I saw a really depressing statistic this morning. I said that to raise two children to the age of 18 to live the American dream costs $3.1 million. I have four children. I cried. Um, <laughs> pray for the preacher this morning. Um, my, my resources feel limited, but Jesus's aren't. Jesus is the source, the father that provides forever. There's there's no end to his provision. There's no end to his protection. But this actually goes to a deeper theological level than we see on the surface. When we think of the first father in the Bible, it's Adam. And if we're honest, Adam is a pretty terrible father. Adam's an awful father. Hello, little friend. Um, I love kids, by the way. Adam's a terrible father. He's a selfish guy. If you look at Adam's actions at the beginning of the Bible, he doesn't think of his children. I mean, God warned him. He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to become like me. It's going to create a distance between us. and It's going to have an effect on all of your children. But he doesn't think that way. He only thinks about his own ambition. He thinks about what he can get out of this. He's a, he's a pretty crummy dad. He's a pretty terrible husband who gaslit and blame shifted toward his wife. He's the one who's supposed to be responsible. He's the one who's supposed to provide everything and has, says, wait a minute, like, look at the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. 
We see, and this is actually one of the most compelling parts of the Bible in Genesis 4, as one son kills the other, you don't see a word from Adam. Adam's silent. He's absent. He's passive. And the only gift that Adam seems to give his children is a sinful nature. That everything broken in this world can be tracked back to Adam's failure to provide as a good father. And this is why Romans 5, 12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Thanks, Dad, the gift that keeps on giving. Adam is the father of the old covenant. He's the father of the old way to get to God, and he failed to provide as the father, or sometimes it's called the head or the source. He's the source of all of our trouble. He's the one that we inherit all of our problems from. And so every tendency toward greed and selfishness and pride that we play out every day comes from him, from our old father. And this is why Jesus is like a new and better father. Romans 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He is the father and the source of all spiritual blessings available to you through his loving work on the cross. And so Jesus, as the provider and protector forever, that means that you don't have to worry that his provision is going to dry up. He's the head and the source of everything you need. And this is why when we go back to Luke 12 and verse 31, instead of worrying, it says, instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is why you can seek Jesus and his glory first, because he's going to give everything else to you. Do you understand how freeing that is? Now, I'm not saying like you need to quit your job and expect checks to come in the mail. Like that doesn't work that way. There was a little Caesars commercial years ago where the guy came and realized that you could get a $5, you know, hot and ready pizza and he goes to strip his shirt off and he's like, put your shirt back on. It's like, put, you know, keep your shirt on is what I'm saying. Like, don't, don't quit your job. But let this change the way that you make decisions. Let it change how you face everyday life. Instead of just seeking to be successful at whatever cost, seek and be obedient to Jesus. Instead of seeking happiness based on how you think you're going to get there, if it's contrary to God and his word, don't take shortcuts, but pursue holiness. Work ethically. Now, we see the love of the Father that he creates and sustains us. He cares and he's compassionate. He's a protector and a provider. But for some of us, the imagery of a father is still difficult. The idea that God could be good as a father is hard for us. And that's why Jesus' everlasting father redeems our idea of fatherhood. It may be hard to grasp the idea of a forever father who loves you with an eternal love. And, and because all you've ever felt from your earthly father, your birth father, was unworthiness and that you weren't intelligent and that you were incompetent and unlovable, but even if you've never experienced it, you still want to know you're valued, you want to be empowered, you want to be cared for, know that someone wants you. We all want that. This was actually a major stumbling block for me to see God as good because of my relationship with my earthly father. But I love the way John Piper puts this. He says that in Christ, here's the type of father you get. You get a father who's happy, who's happy, who's happy to be with you. I remember being a kid, and some of you may know this experience, that you, it's, it's 4.30, you've done your homework, and you're watching the clock. Dad's coming home, and you're wondering, what kind of day did dad have? Did dad have a frustrating day at work? Did he get stuck in traffic? Did his favorite sports team lose? Like, what, what happened today? 
What, what type of dad am I going to get? Am I going to get an angry dad, an impatient dad? But in Christ, we get a happy father. And we see that the scriptures say that God delighted in him. And he said, I'm well pleased with you. And here's what you and I get in the gospel is all of our sinfulness gets transferred for Jesus' obedience and we get treated like Jesus gets treated. And so when God looks at you, he delights in you. He, he loves you. He wants to be with you. And, and it's not transactional. It's not like, I love you if you make me proud. It's not, I love you if you perform for me. It simply is that he loves you because he chose to love you. He's satisfied in you because he's satisfied in Jesus. And so this morning, the question is, is do you believe that God is happy with you? Do you believe that God wants to be with you? That's the type of God and father we get. We get a generous father. In the Bible, I'm just blown away by the generosity of God. The Old Testament, when Israel is in wandering, is like the longest road trip to Disney ever. It's 40 years, the kids are complaining, he's constantly shoving Chick-fil-A into the backseat. That's basically what happens when man is coming from heaven. He's constantly gracious and generous. Chick-fil-A sauce for you and for you. Manna in the wilderness, just constantly. We see plentiful grace in their lives and in our lives that we screw up again and again and he continues to be gracious. We see the gift of his own son and we see a father who's not holding out on us. We also see an exhorting father. One who wants to train us up to live the best life we could possibly live, the most flourishing life in him to train us for godliness because good parents don't let their kids do whatever they wanna do. That's a plug for that parenting seminar you guys got coming up. Um, good parents don't let their kids do whatever. They, they don't, they're not passive. They don't stand in the back. They, they train their kids towards something. I'm not saying you gotta be mean or oppressive, but they exhort them towards godliness. They exhort them to, to love God and love neighbor, to figure out what matters most and what's most valuable, to sacrifice for something, to guide them toward godly living. You have a forever father who's willing to tell you that you're wrong. You have a forever father who's willing to convict you by your Holy Spirit and say the way that you're living is not gonna lead to life. You have a forever father who will discipline you when you rebel because he loves you. You also have a listening father. He hears you. He's attentive. He answers. I don't know if you ever had a conversation with your parents, and really it's just any conversation where you're talking to someone and they clearly just check out of the conversation. Anybody ever had one of those moments? You get a lot of, yeah, man, that's crazy. You know, like, once you start hearing that's crazy, conversation's over, okay? <laughs> You've had that with your parents and you just tell that they've checked out. God never checks out. He's listening to you. Now I wanna say a note to dads and, and, and I think there's an application for moms here too, but I think particularly for dads, if you didn't have an example of what it looks like to be a dad, it's hard to figure out how to be a dad. Like how do I do this and not repeat the cycle? How do I not just live into what I've always known? I think you can learn to be a good parent from Jesus. John Piper said that good fathers serve, bleed, and die to themselves in love because they learn to lead at the foot of the cross. We can become good fathers because Jesus is a father, like a father forever. But I also say this, there are a lot of godly parents in this congregation that you can look to and pattern your life after. That you can look to and look at their kids and see the fruit and say like, those are people I wanna watch and I wanna follow and learn. We, we all want a father like we just heard about. 
one who loves you with a, with a personal love of a personal father, and he is a personal God. This is why Jesus can't just be a concept. He had to take on flesh for us because there's a distance between us and God before the cross. Lastly, Jesus as everlasting father reclaims us to the father. He reclaims us to the love of God, for the love of God, and because of the love of God. There was a distance. He, he reclaims us to the great love of the Father because the way that the Bible describes you and I before Jesus steps onto the scene is that we are lost, orphaned, and estranged. That we are lost and we are wandering, that we are orphaned without a family, and we are estranged from God, not because God doesn't love us, but because of our choices. But in Christ coming and dying on the cross for us, we have a God and a Father who came after us and found us. We have a, a God who came and brought us out of orphanhood into his family, and we are no longer estranged, but we are beloved. But to get there, there has to be a change of status. You have to go from orphan to family, and this only happens if your guilt, your shame, and your sin are taken away. We, they have to be completely forgiven. You need a forever father, like Psalm 103 says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love, and mercy. You need Christ to rescue you to the love of the Father. Herman Bavinck said that Jesus takes away your guilt and again opens the way to God's fatherly heart. You need to be saved to God and his love, but also for the love of the Father. We're not just saved so that we get out of hell. We're saved to enjoy God. We're saved to enjoy Jesus forever. And you can experience and enjoy the love of a forever father with unending compassion and unending joy and an unending provision who's never gonna let you go because as Spurgeon said that in Christ, there is no unfathering and there is no unchilding. We are in Christ to enjoy this love. But I think we often treat the love of Christ, which is costly and beneficial, a bit like a, like a gym membership. We treat it a little bit like Planet Fitness. I like Planet Fitness. I go to Planet Fitness but Planet Fitness has the most brilliant marketing strategy ever because they've made a gym for people who don't go to the gym. Um, it, they, the average Planet Fitness has 10,000 members. And even though if the bars are like three or four on the little meter, if any of Planet Fitness people, there's not 10,000 people there. They found a gym because it's basically just full of treadmills and hip abductor machines as far as the eye can see. It's all stuff that no one's actually gonna use who goes to the gym. And it's cheap. So you'll pay the 10 bucks and never go to the gym. We treat the love of Christ that way because we don't see the benefit of what we actually get to enjoy or the cost or what it costs us. I think the love of Christ is a little bit more like lifetime fitness. That's like hundreds of dollars a month. <laughs> they got everything. I'm moving into lifetime fitness. Like, you know, they got people there that will like lift weights for you and you get stronger. I don't get it. It's magic. It's the deep magic from the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't get it. It's, it's, there's a great cost to it and a great benefit. And if we understood the costliness of the love that's been given to us and the benefit that you and I get to enjoy, I think we'd quit hiding from God. I think we'd quit pretending. I think we'd quit putting so much pressure on others to provide the love that only God would provide and we would press into the love given to us. But I don't, I don't wanna leave out the reason but we're saved because of the great love of the Father. Why did Jesus come? Love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life that comes from an everlasting forever father. So just some takeaways to encourage you as we leave. Simple, simple truths. Jesus loves you so deeply. He loves you. 
He loves you. It's that truth that sometimes doesn't set in. If you've ever watched the movie Goodwill Hunting, at the end, Robin Williams' character is trying to convince Matt Damon that it's not his fault, and he has to tell him multiple times before that truth sinks into his heart. We need to be, need to be told the truth that God loves us over and over again, because I don't think we believe it. Jesus cares about you so much. He knows and he sees the things you're going through because he knows you and he gave his life for you to be his. Will you receive and rest in this love this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your love, Jesus, that you display to us through the cross, the love of an everlasting forever father. That's not a love that's gonna run out. That's not a love that's gonna cease when we've failed too much, but it's a love that you gave to us. It's a love that you give to us as creator and sustainer, that you provide for us in ways that we could never provide for ourselves, that you care for us and you're compassionate toward us. And Lord, as we think through the the wounds of our, our own relationships, whether it's with a father or a mother or a friend, we know that you are the better father. You are the better friend. You're the better lover. And that you love us with an unending forever love. So Lord, help us to rest in that love this morning. Help us to worship out of that love this morning and help us to rejoice with great joy. And we pray this in your name, amen.